Well, the title is Christian Ethics. Now, if you are a follower of someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you will know that uh, he doesn't like that title. And the reason he doesn't like that title is because he is clear in his mind that there is only one ethical system that is correct, and that is Christian ethics. So if there's one correct ethical system, you, all you have to do is say ethics. So we're going to talk about ethics, as Bonhoeffer understood ethics. And you see, I've got a subtitle based on timeless universal principles. I call that TUP. It's an acronym for Timeless Universal Principles. The idea here is that the principles of ethics are timeless. They apply everywhere, in every situation, all the time. And so when you begin to see that, you begin to see something of what real ethics is. So I want to use your imaginations a little bit. Can you be a little creative with me, a little dream a little bit with me? So imagine that you're out in the middle of the ocean. And let's assume that you know roughly which ocean you're in. You know you're in the Pacific or Atlantic. You kind of know where you are. And let's say you have a map. And let's say you have no compass and it's cloudy. You can't see anything. You can't see any land. You want to go to land. You can't stay in the ocean because you've got to have water, you have to have food, you have to have a place to live. You can't live in the ocean. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You don't have a compass. Now, you know, compasses can be very helpful. Uh, I'll tell a little story on my wife. When she was in college, um, she went to this big campus and, she, you know, she didn't know her way around. So somebody said, you need to get a compass. So she got the compass, and uh, she got very upset with the compass. And the reason she got upset with the compass is the compass only pointed one way. And she said, I need the compass to point where I want to go. But it only points one way. So, you know, having a compass is not enough. You have to know how to read a compass as well. So that's important imagery here. Because this is a picture I'm trying to give you that compares to our lives. When you come into the world, the day you're born, you come into a, a boat in an ocean, and you've got parents there telling you something about it, and you're going to learn about it as you grow up, but you still need a compass to tell you which way to go. You may have a map, but if you don't know which way to steer and to row your boat, you won't be able to make a good choice. You'll probably make a very bad choice, maybe a deadly choice. So this happens to everyone. We need a compass. We know how to read, need to know how to read the compass. For a Christian, and for ethics, as Bonhoeffer put it, the only valid compass is Scripture. That's the only valid compass. There is no other compass. The world, which is largely driven by humanism, basically looks to each person as his, as his own compass. So you could say the humanist says that they are self-governed self under self. A Christian should be self-governed under God. And to be self-governed under God, you have to be under God's authority, and you have to be under his revelation, and the greatest source of revelation we have is in Scripture. Now, you may object a little bit to Bonhoeffer's singularity of Christianity having the only right ethical system. But
but let me just say this. Uh, there are five basic worldviews in the world. 90% of the world's population fall into one of these five worldviews. Christianity, Islam, secular humanism, Hinduism, and Buddhism. That's 90% of the world. If you want to cover about 94% of the world, you, you can add a sixth one. That would be the Chinese folk religion. And that covers 94% of the world. All of those, with except, exception of Christianity, are humanistic. Man is making up his own rules. He's making up his own gods. He's making up his own guidebook, his own compass. He's creating his own compass as if he could. Only God gives us a compass that is correct, that leads us into truth. Another thing I think we need to be clear on is that the whole idea of a compass for us morally is about telling us what is right versus what is wrong. Telling us what is good which is what, versus what is bad. And we have to remember that good is not a relative term. We use it as a relative term. We say, it's a good day. That was a good meal. I had a good night's sleep. That was a good conference. We use it relative. We're talking about my personal opinion about something, my feeling about something. I like it. That is not the theological way to think of the word good. Good is a divine attribute. It is an absolute, transcendent property of God. Therefore, God alone can define it. God alone is the definition of good. So when we're talking about good, you're talking about something that God has defined and it is aligned with him. So if you say a good work, you're talking about a work that aligns with God. It's not a good work because you think it's good. It's only a good work if it fits God's parameters and his definitions. So for example, you go on a mission trip. Is that a good work? Only if God has called you to. You volunteer to participate in a Christian community. Suppose you volunteer for nursery duty, which we're forever needing people to do that, and people don't want to do it, and people volunteer. Does that make it a good work? No. Only if it, that person is called to that work. You see, a good work is a work that God has created and called a person to do. So we have to be very clear on that, because ultimately everything in life is a call to good works. That's what ethics is is living aligned with the good works God has created and called you to do. Those of you who've been through strategic life alignment, you understand that you have to be on the journey of finding your calling. You can't just sit at home and think about it. You've got to go out and look for it. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. God's system is you have to seek him to find him. He's findable. He's near but you can't just sit and watch TV and find him. You find him by engaging in his processes, using his principles to discover his purpose for your life. And that's the place where you can do the good works, the works aligned with the will and ways of God, assuming you do find it and you do use God's principles to execute. So that's the sense of what we're after, is a sense in which ethics is not limited to what you normally think ethics is. Most of us think ethics is about morality, sexual morality, for example. It's about not whether you steal or not, or lie or not, you know, or you covet or not. Those, those things certainly are all ethical parameters, but ethics is fundamentally about discerning the will of God. 
So now you just went way past all of those things that you normally thought were the purview of ethics, and you've included everything else. Because ultimately, life is about discerning the will of God. That's the only reason to live. Jesus lived to do the will of the Father, period. Are you a follower of Jesus? If you are, that should be your purpose, to do the will of God. So you've got to find the call of God on your life. That's an obligation you have, a responsibility. The tools are there, but you have to engage the tools. You have to engage the process. You have to use God's principles, and then you can grow into that calling and fulfill the purpose for which you are called. One of the things that uh, Bonhoeffer says, the purpose of ethics is to do good works, works aligned with the will and ways of God, to produce good in the world. You hear that? The purpose of ethics is to do good works to produce good. Now you have to stop and be, remind yourself, we are not talking about regeneration. The starting point for the salvation process of Christianity is regeneration. That's a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. We do nothing to earn it, deserve it. We can't make it happen. It's totally sovereign. Once you have been born again, you now have the Spirit of God in you, and the marker that you have the Spirit of God in you is you desire to learn how to walk with God, to grow up and mature in Christ so you can find those work assignments that you've been called to do. That's the marker. You want to know if somebody's a Christian? Watch, look at how they live. Reading the Proverbs this morning, I noticed in Proverbs 20, it said this, even a child is known by his actions. Well, the predicate of that, that Proverbs is that, that people are known by their actions. Even a child is known by his actions. So we have to realize that, that works are part of Christianity. They're not salvific. They don't save us. But they reveal whether or not we're saved. You hear that? You've got to be clear on that because there's a lot of confusion in the Christian world about that. And a lot of people run around claiming grace and just ignoring the call of God and living totally unethical lives. They may not be sexually immoral, but they're unethical because they're not pursuing the call of God in their life. They don't know how to seek it, and they don't know how to just walk it out. So we have to be clear. Ethics covers everything. Everything in life is an ethical decision. All right, so let me give you some definitions. Uh, Christian ethics is the process of discovering the will of God and living congruent with his will. And when you say his will, you Im it's implied his ways. You can't execute the will of God according to your ways. That's out of bounds. You have to execute the will of God according to his ways and in his timing and using his resources. There are a lot of ways we can get out of bounds with God. We have to be very diligent about staying in bounds, and we know there are principles that will guide us. When we find the will of God, there's always provision to do the will of God. And so we don't have to make things happen. We can be patient and let them happen as God wants them to happen. So Christian ethics is a process of discovering the will of God and living congruent with his will. Therefore, every choice is a moral decision. Every choice. What time you go to bed, where you vacation, what car you drive, what job you have, how you respond to a problem in the workplace, how do you resolve a conflict with someone, you know, what Christian community you're part of. You know, these are all moral choices that God has made. We think they're our choices. We think we get to choose. 
if you really believe that Jesus is Lord, who gets to choose? Only Jesus can choose. We get to discover and we get to obey. That's our responsibility. Christian ethics is found in timeless universal principles, largely revealed through Scripture, although there are some of those principles in general revelation, which is creation, but mainly it's special revelation, which is the Word of God. The challenge we have is our context today. We live in a fallen state. What does it mean to be fallen? When Adam and Eve sinned and they fell, how far did they fall? What did it mean? Well, the Old Testament, one of its key points is to reveal to us the depth of the fallenness of mankind. So it starts out with deranged thinking. You might say, you know, faulty thinking. You might say depraved thinking. You can use different terms. I'm using the word deranged thinking. Uh, And Paul in Romans 1 uses the word unnatural. So you could say unnatural thinking. You see, when when God created the the universe in Genesis 1 and 2, it was perfect. That was normal. That was natural. What happened when sin entered is the world became abnormal. It became unnatural because sin distorts the will of God. It distorts the purpose of God. So deranged thinking is what led Adam and Eve to sin, to commit that first act. Now, you know reproduction after kind is the principle that God put into his creation. So we, as his heirs, as the heirs of Adam and Eve, we all have this deranged thinking. When we are born, the day we're born, we are born deranged thinkers. And that deranged thinking manifests a lot of ways. Number one is we want to live separated from God. We want to do what we want to do. We want to make our own choices, make our own decisions. We want to decide what rules we'll follow. We don't want to submit. So we become humanist. We're very self-focused. We're autonomous. We're narcissistic. We're hedonistic. Every one of us. This is how we come into the world. The only way that changes is the power of the Holy Spirit transforming you as you learn to live according to the will and ways of God. As you learn to live a lifestyle that's characterized by Christian ethics. Christian ethics is what should be driving your lifestyle. If it's not, then you're just making up your own way. You're just creating your own lifestyle, your own rules. You're making your own choices. You're you're out of bounds. You're not within the boundary of Christianity. Today, it's popular to think of Christianity in terms of the gospel of salvation. That gospel believes that Jesus is Lord of some, not Lord of all. The gospel of the kingdom believes Jesus is Lord of all. There are two different gospels. Now, there's a connection. Certainly, in the gospel of the kingdom, the issue of eternal life is there. But the gospel of the kingdom is about Jesus being Lord of everything. But today, we teach people, and I see this with my Bible students. I saw several this semester that repented to me of this. They said this. You know, we always thought that, you know, we came to Christ. God was happy We have our ticket to heaven, and now we can go live the way we want to live. Everybody wins. That's the way they thought. And they they were able to say to me, we realize that's not Christianity. Very good. Very good. You may be a Bible student. You may come here, come to this institute thinking that you're a Christian. You've discovered maybe you're not a Christian. And maybe you need an encounter with Christ like Paul had where Jesus introduces yourself to him and tells you, guess what? 
Remember what he told Paul? He told Paul, you will suffer much for me. That's what the encounter with Jesus is really all about, is you dying to self so you can become his servant, which includes to suffer the things he's called you to suffer. Now, that's very challenging. That vexes us. We don't like that. We like that gospel of salvation where I got my ticket to heaven, I can go do what I want to do. That's humanism masquerading as Christianity. That is not Christianity. So we got to be clear on that. So these are the human traits. This is the fallen condition of mankind. We come into the, this world totally depraved, totally unable to meet God's right, righteous standards. That's what total depravity means. That is not utter depravity. Utter depravity means we could do nothing good at all. We would just continually lie, steal, cheat, be immoral, kill people, just chaos. We're not utterly depraved. We have some grace. It's called common grace. And we have a conscience. And the conscience enables us in our fallen state to know it's wrong to kill somebody. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to lie. We naturally know that in our internally. And that's a gift of God that enables a fallen world to survive while God is executing his plan of redemption. So we do have, we understand the common grace and the work of the conscious in the aspects of total depravity, and that's critical to being able to live and survive today. Now, what's God's response to mankind's sin? God had a choice, sovereign choice. He told them, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. They died spiritually, and they died physically, but it wasn't executed immediately. So that delay in the execution of physical death enabled them to reproduce, and so we are their heirs. We have come from that. That's a sign of mercy, love, and forbearance on part of God. But judgment will come, and Adam and Eve did die physically eventually, but not before they reproduced. Well, the same will be true of us. So God is executing this plan of redemption, and we get the benefit of his love and mercy. When you are able to work with anyone or live next to someone or do anything with anyone who's, who's not walking in Christian ethics and they're able to help you and to bless you in some way, it's common grace. It's the gift of the conscience. And that enable, enables us to survive. If we didn't have that, we would, we would not even survive. We wouldn't even be here. It'd be over. We'd just have already killed everybody. There'll be death and destruction all about. You get a glimpse of what utter depravity looks like when you see a mass shooting. That's a picture of it. Just death and destruction and carnage, and usually for no good reason at all, it's just some very sinful thought going on in the mind of the guy. He's just aiming and killing aimlessly. Whoever's there, he kills them. That's what utter depravity, that's kind of a glimpse of what it looks like. Okay, so let's talk about some foundations of thinking, ethical thinking. You have to realize that every day you make choices. You communicate those choices verbally, non-verbally, and you do things. And you have motives, you do have means and methods, and you do specific actions. So these are ways that you express your ethics. I can see your ethics by just looking at your choices and see where you are relative to true ethics. The only valid ethical compass is the Word of God. It's the most authoritative source of, of Tup. It's the Bible illuminated by the Holy Spirit as historically understood by the ecclesia. You have to be clear on what the ecclesia is. The ecclesia 
is the people of God, and Jesus is building it. He's building his ecclesia. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. Now, today, as we get confused about this, because we run around and we see buildings with these signs on them that says such and such church, and we just assume, well, that must be where Christians meet. Not necessarily. If you believe some of the recent statistics that suggest that over almost 70% of leaders who claim to be church leaders do not have a basic Christian worldview, that suggests there's probably 70% of these buildings out there with placards on that says church, those are probably false churches. They're not real churches. A real church will be true to the word of God. So it's probably a very small percentage of the organizations that claim to be churches that are part of the real ecclesia. And even within a local ecclesia, most of them have open doors so anybody can come in and you've got a blend. You've got people that are not part of the ecclesia and people that are. So the ecclesia is pretty much kind of hidden. It's hidden away in various venues. It's not necessarily easy to find. But you need to know it's there. And God is working through it. And God has been working 2,000 years through the ecclesia to clarify, to illuminate his word, and to, through the Holy Spirit, give us clarity on his truth, on his will and his ways. So this is foundational. Now let me give an example of how this works how you are regulated by the word of God. You remember when Jesus was tested right after he was baptized. He comes up out of the water, the dove descends on him, the voice from heaven, you know, announcing this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then it says the spirit, apparently the Holy Spirit, drove him into the desert. Well, that's really fun. The spirit driving you into the desert. And he's, now he's fasting for 40 days. At the end of 40 days, here comes Satan. He picks this opportune time, doesn't he? And he says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, could he have done that? Absolutely. He was the son of God. He could have turned those stones into bread. He could satisfy his hunger right there. But what he said is something very profound. It shows his ethic. Man does not live by bread alone, meaning I need bread every Humans need bread, but that's not what we really need. What we really need is the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So until we can get to the point where spiritual food trumps physical food, we're probably not very profound disciples. Now that's really hard. No, most people don't like that. We like our food. Yeah, we like our desserts. We like these things. But Jesus was not about liking things. What he was about was the will of the Father. That's what it means to live an ethical life, that everything is driven by what is the will of God? What are the ways of God? What's the timing of God? What's the provision of God? You know, who are the people of God? You're always asking, what is God up to? So this is foundational thinking. So let me give you a key principle. You have to understand as you go to Scripture, as your compass and you want to understand it as historically understood by the ecclesia, the real ecclesia, you're going to find two basic categories of truth. You're going to find unequivocal truth, and you're going to find equivocal truth. Now, unequivocal truth means that it's very clear. It's unequivocal. What it says, it says it's unequivocal. cannot be doubted. 
On the other hand, equivocal truth is truth that, well, maybe it means this or maybe it means that, and we need to look at other scripture and see how they would help us understand this. So it's not quite as clear. There's some room for some ambiguity until you can reach a conclusion. So some examples of this. Uh, unequivocal truth, the creation mandate, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. You want to know why we're here? That's why we're here. I'm sorry to tell you, we are not here to fulfill what is normally thought of as a great commission. That is world evangelism. That's a misunderstanding of Matthew 28, certainly a misunderstanding of what the real great commission is. The real great commission is giving at the beginning when God creates man, puts him in the garden, says, this is why you're here, to be my ruling agents. That's very clear. And most Christians, if you get them, get their nose in scripture and you get that verse in front of them and say, tell me what, what's wrong with this being the great commission. They have no good reason why it should not be the great commission. They will acknowledge, yep, that's the first one. That's the most important. And we've never done it very well. Yep, that's very true. But it's clear. The creation mandate is clear. It's the Great Commission. And then you have the Ten Commandments. Any question that those are great ethical standards? I think everyone pretty well agrees with that. It's amazing how the cultures of the world, even that don't have the, the scriptures, have in their conscience, they have the Ten Commandments in some form. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2. It's very clear. Those are ethical standards we need to follow. And then we have the greatest commandment. Jesus gave us that in Matthew 20, 22 which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. And the second one is the golden rule. So those are clear, very clear. So that's never a problem. When you, when you discover clear revelation, you have one choice to make, one true choice. You obey. That's it. There's no other choice. It's not up for discussion. No, it's no yeah, buts. It's the people, you know, Balaam was the one that said, yeah, but, and he got into trouble. If you're familiar with that story. And we've got a guardian set. We can't do yeah, but. We can't be like Eve and begin to entertain doubt. That's what she did. She, the qu first question she was asked is, did God say? You know, she should not have never even entertained that. She was invited into doubting what God said, and she bought it. So we've got to be careful. We don't, we don't, we, unequivocal stuff, we do not bite on the temptation to doubt it. Equivocal, on the other hand, is much more challenging. So let me give you some examples of this. How you use debt. Do you use debt or not? Is debt okay or not? Which one? Scripture doesn't really give us a definite don't use debt. It gives us a warning. A warning doesn't mean don't do it. It just means it's a warning, like be careful. Well, how far do you go? What can you use debt for? Well, now you've got to get into a process of discerning. It's not quite clear. How about alcohol consumption? Yes or no? You know, if you're Baptist like me, I grew up Baptist. No, absolutely not. There used to be an amendment in this country. No alcohol consumption. And that got overturned. And so now we've got just about everybody drinking, it seems like. And even the professing Christians are drinking. In fact, some of them, you know, they drink their wine in their communion. So what do you do with that? What's right? What's scripture really say about alcohol consumption? How about how to respond to deranged thinking? Every day, you're going to run into people that are deranged thinkers. And if you look in the mirror, you may see one. You've got to be careful. You know, who is it that really has sound thinking? The only people that do are the ones that think biblically. And thinking biblically takes a lot of time and energy to begin to build that ability. 
You're probably not going to be thinking very biblically if all you do is come hear a message once a week. Uh, and you, it's a very simple message because it can't be more than that when you've got a mixed audience. You've got to engage in really learning the Word of God. You can't just be casual about it. So you've got deranged thinkers throughout the body of Christ. People profess to be Christians that think like the world. We've got a lot of those. So we've got, we've got to, how do we deal with all these things? Well, there's a clue. There's a principle. This is the ethical reflection methodology. When you are facing an equivocal situation where you don't have clear, unequivocal guidance from Scripture, you have to get into ethical reflection. What is it that Scripture is saying? I've got to look at all of Scripture and begin to discern what Scripture says. So this is the ask-seek-knock process of Matthew 7, verse 7. Jesus says, first, is you ask. Ask, it will be given to you. Ask is prayer. That's the first thing you do when you are in ethical reflection. Get into prayer. Second thing is you seek. Seek is, you know, you begin to look at options. You look at all the scripture that bears upon a particular situation. Personally, get under godly teachers who can teach you things you don't know. And engage commissioning agents, authority figures in your life who can help you process and interpret what you're seeing in scripture. And you may want to get some advisors in the, in the patch, in the, in the balance with you. See, this is, a, this is a process of community trying to come together to discern what the scriptures are saying about some equivocal issue. At some point, a door will probably show up. The door will be, oh, okay, this is the way to understand it. Don't go blowing through the door. Knock on the door. Let the Holy Spirit open the door. That's why you knock. So ask, seek, knock. This is the divine problem-solving methodology. It's the divine method for ethical reflection. So I encourage you, learn this principle and apply this principle. This is the way you will be able to address issues that are equivocal, that Scripture does not give you really, really clear guidance on. Let me give you some examples of unequivocal very quickly. These are very simple. You should know these. If you don't know these, um, Get under a godly spiritual father to help you learn these. These are very, very simple, easy things. So I'm just dividing these up into the five spheres of authority. Self-government, family government, ecclesiastical government, workplace government, civil government. So self-government. The popular view of self-government is self-governance under self. That's called humanism. That's autonomy. That's how we come into this world. We want to self-govern ourselves. We want to do what we want to do. Scripture makes it very clear. We're here to be self-governed under God, period. That's it. It's unequivocal. Family government. Popular view today is cohabitation. People think it's a great way to test drive a relationship. Well, sorry. Matthew 19, 3 through 6 tells us that marriage is the only proper relationship in which sexual relationships are to occur. Cohabitation will, provides a venue for, for sexual relationships that's out of bounds. It's not licit. So we have unequivocal testimony from the mouth of Jesus about what marriage is. He defines it. We have no right to redefine it. And the attempts to redefine it today are all humanistic. They're not Christian. All right, ecclesiastical government. I talked to you about the gospel of salvation. That's the popular gospel. If you find a community that really does bend the knee to the word of God, most likely it's going to be their gospel, their good news is going to be about going to heaven. They're not going to understand that Jesus is Lord in Christ. They will focus on Jesus being the Christ. And they'll leave it up to you to do what you want to do. But Christianity is Jesus is Lord. 
in Christ. Not only is he our Savior, he's our Lord. If he's our Lord, he gets to make the choices. That's a really hard one, because we don't like that. We like the humanism that's instinct in our communities and our culture and in our nature itself. Workplace governments. Work, workplaces, really, for most people, they work because they, they need money. That's why they work. They don't really work because, because they have a calling. They don't even know what their calling is. They don't know how to find their calling. Most people are just lost. They're like the people in the boat. They don't know what to do because they have not engaged in God's process of discovery. So the reality is we're here to fulfill the creation mandate. That's what we're here to do. God's ruling agents. That's why we're here. That's unequivocal. Finally, civil government. We think it's all about secularization, separation of the Bible from everything. The Bible has nothing to do with court rulings, with laws, with, with anything else. In fact, we want to remove any kind of semblance of the Bible. You've got a monument with the Ten Commandments on it. You've got to take it down. See, this is, the, this is the folly of the culture because we have unequivocal truth in the Word of God that we are to live aligned with the Word of God through our civil authorities. You can look at Romans 13 and see their obligation is to do you good. The word good is used there as biblically defined as that absolute transcendent principle that speaks of God and his nature. That's what government should do. But there's almost no sense of that today, sadly. So these are unequivocal. So the really challenging ones are the equivocal ones. This is where you have to really wrestle. These are the hard ones. So here, let me give you a couple examples here. Uh, answer a fool or not. What do you do with a fool? How do you handle it? Well, just look what Proverbs says. Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you will be like him yourself. That was don't answer, right? Then it says, answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. Wait a minute. These are successive verses. This is Proverbs 26, 4, and 5. These are not separated verses. They're right side by side. Answer a fool in one verse. Don't answer a fool in the other verse. What do we do with that? Now, would you agree that's equivocal? Like, okay, we've got to get into a process here of discerning what in the world we do with this. This looks like a contradiction. You'll find people saying, the Bible contradicts itself. No, it doesn't. We believe the Bible is the word of God and is inherently, it is internally consistent if properly understood. So one of the ways to understand Proverbs is that Proverbs is a book of maxims. You know what a maxim is? A maxim is something that's generally true. And if it's a, a book of maxims, that means there are times when certain verses or any of the verses may not be true, maybe circumstances. Give me an example. There's a verse in there that talks about if you live a righteous life, you'll have a long life. Did that happen to Jesus? No, it didn't happen to Jesus. He didn't live a long life. So that's an illustration. That maxim is generally true, but it was not true in the case of Jesus. So here we have two Proverbs talking about how to deal with fools. These are maxims. They're generally true. Sometimes you do one thing, sometimes you do another. So you have to learn to discern. The best way to discern is not listen to your own propaganda. <laughs> to engage the people God has put you in community with to help you discern what he's saying. This is why we have to learn how to live in covenant communities. We don't know how to do that very well. So we struggle with things like this. We don't know how to get help. 
So we don't know how to really discern the will of God, which means we're inherently fighting Christian ethics because of our flesh. The humanism is, isn't rise up in, rises up in us, causes us to think we can figure it out by ourselves. All right, how about another one? How do you discern the source of and the reason for resistance? You ever resisted with something? I think most everybody's had resistance at some point in some way. Uh, well, where's that resisting com coming from and why? Well, here's a couple of texts. Uh, Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we st our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the darkness, against evil and spiritual forces in the heavens. Okay, so it's, this is talking about what our struggle is. The resistance is evil forces, spiritual forces. Is that always true? Is this a maxim? This is probably a maxim. Take a look at the next one. Numbers 22 says, The donkey saw the angel of the Lord and pressed herself against the wall, squeezing Balaam's foot against it, so he hit her once again. This is the donkey being, being moved by the angel of God to try to resist what Balaam is trying to do, which he's on, on the road to try to curse the people of God. He's out of order. God has sent an angel to stop him. Was that angel an evil force? Well, no, it wasn't an evil force. So here's an exception to Ephesians 6.12. So what do we do with that? Well, we understand that these are more likely maxims, that there are situations where this is true or that is true. So when you have the resistance coming at you, who is it? Is it the forces of evil or is it an angelic being? Is the Holy Spirit some way trying to get your attention? You know if it's the forces of evil, he's trying to stop you. If it is an angelic being, he may be trying to stop you. He may be trying to just make you stronger. So you've got to be discerning. It's not automatic. This is what equivocal choices are about. They require reflection. They require spiritual discernment, wisdom, prayer, counsel, guidance from the Word of God, or you'll never make these choices well. All right, so let me give you some workplace choices. These are, I've just picked five here that are pretty common, and these are equivocal choices. You know, the unequivocal choices, there are no choices. You just obey. You do a scripture. Equivocal choices, now you've got to make a decision. What's, what's the right thing to do here? So let's say the American dream. This is the big deal in America today. If you've got a financial advisor, he's talking to you about the American dream. Okay, that's all about you working as hard as you can, making as much money as fast as you can, so you can stop working as soon as you can, so you can do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. Nobody tells you what to do. That's the American dream. Isn't that right? That's what we, hey, that's the big deal. Cool. Is this the right motive? You working to not work? Is that what we were created to do? Work hard so you don't have to work anymore? Well, certainly, hopefully, you readily recognize that doesn't fit the creation mandate at all. Furthermore, here's Proverbs 11:4. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Now, this is, for me, this is really not too equivocal. This is kind of unequivocal. Some of you may wrestle with it. I know my financial advisor clients, they all wrestle with this. They hate it when they I talk about this because it messes with their business. This is messes with their cash flow. But you've got to wrestle with this. How about the second one? Bifurcation of personal and work life. How many of you have heard some boss say, okay, what you're doing here I don't like. 
But you can do it in your personal life, just don't bring it to the office. You heard things like that? You don't hear that as much now, but it used to be you would hear that. Uh, Ross Perot, those of you know about him, a businessman from the latter part of the last century, very successful financially. I wouldn't say beyond that. I don't know where he was spiritually, but he had some interesting principles. One of his principles was, is he, if he found any one of his employees, anyone, was ever an adulterer, he fired him on the spot. Now, this is back in the 60s and 70s. And so somebody asked him one time, well, Ross, why are you doing that? You're not, you're not giving him any opportunity to, to even explain the situation or, or remedy them, you know, go into some kind of restoration process so they can continue with the company. It's just you fire them on the spot. He said, yeah, I do. And, it, and they say, I said, why? And Ross said, it's very simple. If they will betray their wife, they will betray me. That's it. I can't have that. He was very clear. There, there's no bifurcation for him. But today, there's bifurcation. You see, they think, we think it's possible. You can take that and do that in your private life, but not in the work life. But Scripture tells us something different. Now, again, I think this is kind of unequivocal, but a lot of people don't. So I'm putting this in the equivocal category, giving some consideration that people would think about this that way. Above all else, Proverbs says, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from your heart. You have one heart. You don't have two hearts. Here's my heart for my personal life, heart for my work life. No, it's all one. So you can't bifurcate. The HR function of hiring. I see this a lot too. Most people, when they have an opening, they need to hire somebody. What do they do? Okay, make a list of what I need. What are the skills I need, the experience, the, you know, the track record that I'm looking for, and I'm going to start hiring to that. It's hiring to skills. Well, is that the right way to do it? Well, look what Proverbs says. Like an archer who wounds at random is one who hires a fool. A fool is a deranged thinker or any passerby. I don't know about your experience, but having been a consultant for years, I have seen one failure after another by people with poor hiring practices. And so we can't be light about this. We have to learn God's principles. If you know God's principles, there's a principle called the C4 principle for how to discover the call of God on people. And that's how you hire. You hire people who are called to be part of your organization. You don't hire people just because they have what looks like to be the skills. So this again gets back to you've got to get clear. I think the more you study scripture, the fewer equivocal issues you will have. Do you hear me? The more you know scripture, the fewer equivocal issues you have because you'll be clearer and clearer about the standards. I think the less you know scripture, everything will become equivocal because you just don't know the truth. You don't know many of the principles. How about leverage your debt? Is it right to use debt? This gets a little more equivocal here. What do you do with debt? There are rules in Scripture about how to handle debt. There are rules about what happens to the lender as well as the borrower, how they function. Proverbs 22, 7 says, The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant of the lender. That doesn't say don't do debt. It just tells you this is the relationship. If you're in debt, you are a servant of the lender. So what do you do? Now, that's where you've got to really drop into some ethical reflection to get some wisdom here. How about best practices? Boy, this is a big one. 
How many times do you hear people in the workplace talk about, we do best practices, we adopt best practices. That's our earmark, that, like that's a badge of honor. Well, is it right to adopt best practices to maximize profit? Because generally, what's what they mean? We use best practices to maximize our bottom line, to maximize the return to our shareholder, to maximize our growth, to maximize our market presence, you know, to grow. Whatever it is we're trying to do, we're always using best practices. Well, is that right? Well, if you have that mantra, if you're trying to drive the bottom line, drive the top line, what happens to you is you will do, you will compromise. Proverbs 11, 18, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. You see, until you recognize the clarity of the word of God, that it's all about righteousness trumps money. Righteousness trumps money. Doing what's right before God trumps any kind of money issue. Till you get that, uh, you will be vacillating and you'll make a lot of bad choices. You will be living unethical. You'll be living lives that don't reflect Christ. Remember, ethics is about alignment with the will and the ways of God in every situation of life. All right, so let me just give you kind of a, a quick go around of a number of different points and then draw a conclusion here. Um, workplace moral choices. Now, one of the things I, I wanna be clear on is when we use the word ethics and morals, what's the distinction? Ethics are what the standards are. Morals are what you do. When you make a moral choice, you based it on something in your mind or something you believe to be true there's one ethical standard, it is absolute, it's God's standard. There's no other ethical standard that's valid. You know, all of those other worldviews I mentioned to you, those, five, those other four worldviews, those humanistic worldviews, they have some truth in them that they have stolen from Christianity. That's the only truth they have. So they're all humanistic worldviews that they try to to make it look like they're legitimate by stealing truth from Christianity. So this is what you've got to be clear on. Who's got the truth? Not who's stolen the truth, but who's got the truth. And that's Christ is the source of truth. So when we're talking about workplace moral choices, we're talking about bringing Christian thinking, sound thinking, not deranged thinking into the workplace. How about a living wage? What do you do with that? What if you're in a situation where that the competition is not paying a living wage and you can feel convicted to do that? What would you do? How would you handle that? Well, believe it or not, brothers and sisters have had to wrestle with that. And it was not easy because they had to make some choices. They had to make some decisions. How do you define a living wage? Where can I go in the Word of God which defines a living wage? Well, you're not going to go to... You know, to Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 25, and find the living wage for your particular industry in your particular time in your particular city. No, you're going to have to get into ethical reflection to try to discern that. And you've got to be seeking the Lord. The only people I know have ever really successfully fought this battle of paying a living wage when the competition was not were Christians who sought the Lord and use the divine problem-solving methodology, the F-seek-knock process, and would not give up. 
There are all kinds of ways to give up, reasons to give up, but they would not give up. They continued to press in to find the answers. So you can do that, but you've got to be willing to, to, to engage in the battle of ethical reflection to do it. How about fair prices? You know, there are three ways to price any product or service. You should know these things. Very simple. There's what, what competitive pricing is, what the competition is selling it for. There's what it costs you to produce it. And there's a perceived value. Perceived value is what the customer perceives it's worth. You know, what, if you buy Apple products, you probably know they, they work off perceived value. You know, they, their margins are enormous because they've sold you on the Apple products and now they can just up those prices. So what do you do? What's ethical? What's right? What is the will of God? You have to get into ethical reflection. You begin to apply the principles of scripture like the golden rule. How do you want to be treated? If you're buying your product, how would you want to be treated? You want to be you know, always paying a big premium because they know you'll pay it? Or do you want somebody that give you really a fair price? What do you want to do? This is, this is ethics. You've got to get into this. All right, ill-gotten gain. Ill-gotten gain is now where you make a profit illicitly. Maybe you have an illicit value proposition or you have illicit means and methods by which you deliver it. So what do you do here? There was a pastor in, that I know over in uh, the Asia part of the world. Um, his church was getting into a fundraising campaign and they needed money for the building. And so they made it known. And there was a new convert to the community who had formerly been a drug smuggler. And he had repented of that. He came into the community. He was all excited. He's an eager beaver. And they're really excited to have him. And really, they find him. He's really hungry to grow. They're having a lot of success in helping him grow. And so, um, you know, he hears about the campaign. A few weeks later, he just kind of disappeared. Uh, and they didn't know what happened to him, didn't hear from him for a while. And finally, a few weeks later, he comes back. And he's got all this money. And he's going to give it to the campaign. And the pastor says to him, where did you get this money? Oh, he said, oh, I ran into an opportunity. So he got back into the drug smuggling so he could give to the building campaign of the church. So what does that pastor do with that? That was an ethical dilemma. I mean, he's looking at that saying, what do I do with this? So uh, you've got to be careful. You know, when you do things illicitly, it's going to bite you. So it warns us in Proverbs 1, 18 and 19 that um, the warning about the paths of those who go after ill-gotten gain, it will take away the life of those who get it. Okay. How about yoking? Yoking is basically your relationships with everyone. It doesn't matter what um, person you're relating to. It can be, a, a, it can be an employee. It can be a shareholder. It can be a customer. It can be a vendor, a contractor. It doesn't matter. You have, you're, you're yoked with them in delivering some kind of value, some product or service, and they're helping in some way or they're receiving in some way. And so you've got to pay attention to those relationships because we have, we have explicit scriptural teaching on not being unequally yoked. But is that unequivocal or equivocal? Well, most people view that as equivocal because they immediately apply that verse in 2 Corinthians 6 to marriage, but nothing else. But if you look at the context of 2 Corinthians 6, there's nothing in there about marriage. Say, so, whoa, we are putting limits on it 
The, the scripture doesn't put on it. That's out of bounds. That's not good exegesis. It's not good interpretation. So we have to face something we don't like, which is, wow, unequal yoking might apply to the workplace. Really? Yep. What does that look like? How do you do this? Yeah, well, this is the, part, this is the battle. This is where you need ethical reflection. This is where you need advisors. This is where you know, Christianity is a community experience. It's not meant to be a solo event. Conflict resolution. You know, Scripture explicitly says we're not supposed to go, go to law courts. You know that, don't you? You've read that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that. I mean, Christians, why are you going to civil courts to settle your disputes? You should be able to settle them yourself. Because you're sound thinkers. Or you should be sound thinkers. But maybe you're not sound thinkers. Maybe you're deranged thinkers, so you wind up going to court. So what do you do with that? Well, if you're really trying to live you know, as a true disciple of Jesus under his ethics, you will not want to go to law courts. But you've got to wrestle with that. You, it takes two to tango. When you have a conflict, you have another party. So you've got to think about, okay, when I start in an agreement with someone, I want provisions in the agreement where we can work out our conflicts apart from the civil courts. So you have to work on these things. It's a process. It's not easy. And when you start taking those special clauses about um, conflict resolution, where you talk about how the Bible is our superior authority and all that, you ought to watch the attorneys, see how they look at that. It's, a, it's quite an interesting experience. I've had some of that. Uh, workplace policies. Uh, a number of the clients I've had over the years have had a policy of no layoffs. No layoffs. Like, really? No layoffs? Are you perfect in your hiring? You never make a hiring mistake? Is that what you're saying to me? And, of course, they kind of dodge that question. But that's when you have a no layoff policy, you're implying that you're perfect as a hiring agent. No one's that. This world is a fallen world. This world is a battle. It's a battleground. And the, the enemy is trying to get us off base and away from the will of God. And we're trying to move on and align with the will of God. And that's hard. So workplace policies have to reflect the battle that we're in. They're unwise. But they're, it's, you, know, you may have a sensitivity to try to minimize layoffs. That's fine. But you've got to be into ethical reflection about what is the will of God here? What does he want done? Don't just do it and claim a badge of honor. You've got to be open that maybe you're not hearing or seeing correctly. Finally, generational transfer. It's okay to build a company up fast as you can so you can sell it. Is that okay? Hmm. You've got to look at your heart, your motives. What's in it for God? Why are you doing this? If you are building anything outside the will of God, you're out of bounds. That is unethical. So you have to get into really serious reflection. And most likely, the person you see in the mirror can't answer the question. The person that can answer the question is some spiritual father over you who can look at your heart and tell you what's really going on, even when you don't want to hear it. This is what it is to learn how to make correct ethical decisions as a Christian. So let me just summarize real quickly. Moral choices in a fallen world are very challenging. They require a great deal of wisdom and discernment because we have deranged thinking, we're humanistic, we're autonomous, we're narcissistic, we're hedonistic. By nature, we come into this world with this fallen condition. We have some help. We have a conscience. We have common grace that helps us some 
but it is not all that we need. We need much more. So we have to recognize the challenge of what we've been tasked to do. The triune God of Christianity is the only true source of ethics. There is no other true source of ethics. There's one compass. There is one standard. The God of the universe created the standard. He is the standard. And we must learn to base our thinking on him. So the Bible, as illuminated by the Holy Spirit and historically understood by the ecclesia, the real ecclesia, is the best source of revelation from God about his ethical standards. And his standards are his will and his ways. That's his standard. That's what is good. And good being defined as an absolute. It is absolute in that it means alignment with God. Finally, with the best biblical practice now to help us are these. Number one, where scripture is unequivocal, learn it and obey it, period. Be accountable to it, period. And when you fail, confess your sin and allow people to help you be restored. That's when you have unequivocal truth, that's easy. When you have equivocal truth, you need to know how to do ethical reflection. You need to know how to get into the Word of God and examine all of the Word of God. And my wife had me highlight and underline all for you so you would see that, okay? You are to harmonize all relevant Scripture on any issue to, by faith, discern the right choice. There is a right choice, always a right choice. The question is, can you walk through the process to discern it? And will you have the courage to do it when you don't like to do it, you don't want to do it, or you don't understand it, but you'll do it anyway? Well, if you'll learn how to do that, you'll learn how to live ethically, aligned with the will and ways of God. You'll learn how to do good works. If you can't do this, you're not going to do good works. You're going to do what you think is good works, but they're not really. Because you don't have the right to define a work as being good. Only God can do that. So we have to learn to submit to his standards, his metrics, his definitions, if we're going to live in his ethical system and be true Christians. By the way, true Christians will be ethical. That's how you know they're Christians. They don't become Christians by being ethical. They reveal that they're a Christian by being ethical. So that's the distinction. May we have grace to see this and the strength and the courage to walk it out in Jesus' name. Amen.